Jerusalem, Tuesday, 8.19 p.m. The David's Citadel Hotel was cavernous, built in a modern, scrubbed version of Jerusalem stone and, as far as Maggie could tell, packed with American Christians. She reached for the minibar. With a glass honeyed by a whiskey miniature, she sat at the desk and stared out of the window. She could see a man emerge from the neon-lit convenience store across the street, carrying a flimsy plastic bag. Inside it, a plastic bottle of milk, maybe a jar of honey. A man off home for the night. For some reason, such basic humdrum domesticity had eluded her. She envied that man, heading home with a bottle of milk for the children to drink with their bedtime story. He probably did the same thing every night. Somehow he had managed it without ever trying to break free. Draining her glass, she dialed Edward's number. Maggie. Not a question, not a greeting, a statement. Hi, Edward. How's Jerusalem? A pause. Then... You saved the world yet? I wanted to talk about what's going to happen with us. Well, I was planning on you coming to your senses and coming back home. Then we could take it from there. Coming to my senses? Oh, come on, Maggie. You can't be serious about all this, playing the peacemaker. Maggie closed her eyes. I need to know you understand why I was so angry about those boxes. Look, I don't have time for this. Because if you don't understand, if you can't understand... Then what, Maggie? What? He was raising his voice now. Then I don't know how... What? How we can carry on? Oh, I think we're past that, don't you? I think you took that decision the moment you got on that plane. I offered you a life here, Maggie, and you didn't want it. Can we just talk? There's no more to say, Maggie. I've got to go. Maggie felt a heaviness spreading inside her, as if her chest were turning to concrete. She leaned forward, elbows on her knees. It was over. Her attempt at a normal life had failed, and here she was again in a foreign hotel room, quite alone. But eventually another feeling surfaced, the sense that she had been handed a chance to break free of all those dreadful events of a year ago to balance the ledger somehow, to seize that chance she would have to do what she had done so many times before, push away her feelings and concentrate only on the job. Okay, she thought, forcing herself to make a fresh start. What is the problem? Internal opposition on both sides prompted by two killings, Gutmann and Noor. First priority is to get to the bottom of both cases and somehow reassure both publics that there's nothing to worry about and that the talks should go ahead. She checked the Haaretz site again and saw the same picture she had seen five hours ago, Ahmed Noor smiling that enigmatic smile. She scrolled down to see that Haaretz had now posted an extended appreciation of the life of Shiman Gutman. Now there were more anecdotes and longer quotations. Her eye caught something. In the 1967 campaign and afterwards, Gutman showed his debt to those earlier Israeli heroes Moshe Dayan and Yigal Yadin. He, like them, combined his military prowess with a scholar's passion for the ancient history of this land. He became what polite society refers to as a muscular archaeologist and what the Palestinians call a looter in a tank. Every hill taken and every hamlet conquered were seen not only as squares on the war planner's chessboard, but as sites for excavation. Goodman would swap his rifle for a shovel and start digging. His admirers and enemies said he had amassed a collection of serious importance, a range of pieces dating back several thousand years. 
all of them had one quality in common. They confirmed the continuous Jewish presence in this land. Maybe this was just a coincidence. Gutmann and Noor, both archaeologists, both nationalists, both killed within 24 hours of one another. She read on. He was self-taught, but became a respected authority, with ancient inscription and esoteric specialism. Did he cut corners, both ethical and legal, to build up his hoard? Probably. But that was the man, the last of the Zionist swashbucklers, an adventurer who belonged in the generation of 1948, if not 1908. Two men, not that far apart in age, both digging up the Holy Land to prove it belonged to them, to their tribe. She typed in a new combination. Shiman Gutman, archaeologist. The screen filled up. She scoured the text, looking for... She didn't know what. It made no sense to her, all the talk of embellishments and inlays and cuneiform script. She pressed the shutdown button on the computer and began closing the lid. But the machine refused to turn off. It asked instead if she wanted to close all the tabs, all the pages she was looking at. Her cursor was hovering over yes when she saw Gutmann's name again, small and italic. And now, for the first time, she read the name next to it. Ehud Ramon. Maybe this man would know something. She googled him, bringing up only three relevant results, all three appearing alongside Shimon Gutmann. Of Ehud Ramon as an independent person in his own right, there was nothing. She found a database of Israeli archaeologists and typed Ehud Ramon into the search window. Plenty of Ehuds and one Ramon, but no Ehud Ramon. Same with the Archaeological Institute of America. And then she saw it. There was no Ehud Ramon. It was an anagram. Ehud Ramon was a scholar committed to exhuming the secrets of the soil. But he was the unlikeliest partner for Shimon Gutman, right-wing Zionist zealot and sworn enemy of the Palestinians for Ehud Ramon, was Ahmed Noor. Baghdad, April 2003 Salam had headed to school that morning, more out of habit than expectation. He didn't really believe that his classes would go ahead as normal, but he had gone along anyway, just in case. Under Saddam, truancy from school was, like any other act of disobedience, a risk no one who valued their safety would ever take. Saddam might have been on the run, but amongst most Baghdadis, the caution bred over the course of twenty-four years endured. Salam was not the only one who had dreamed of the dictator rising like Poseidon from the Tigris, drenched and angry, demanding that his subjects fall to their knees. That evening Salam looked under his bed. His booty was still in place. He pulled it out. What's that? Salam instinctively doubled over the clay tablet, but it was no good. His nine-year-old sister had seen it. It's nothing. Leela was already out of the room, skipping down the corridor to the kitchen. Daddy, Daddy, Salam has something he shouldn't have. Salam has something he shouldn't have. Salam stared at the ceiling. He was finished. He held the tablet, stood on the chair by his bed, and began fiddling with the window. Salam. He turned around to find his father in the doorway, one hand already moving to the buckle of his belt. He moved back to the window, working harder now, his fingers trembling, but it was jammed. Suddenly he felt a hand pulling his arm back. He landed hard on his backside. He let out a cry of pain at the impact on the base of his spine. He looked up to see his father calmly pick the clay tablet up from the bed where it had fallen. Dad, it's... 
Quiet. I, I got it from the... Shut it! His father was studying the object, turning it over in his hands. He paid close attention to the clay envelope that held the tablet within. What is it, father? The man looked up and fixed his son with a glare. Don't speak. Then he headed out of Salam's bedroom, walking slowly and with extreme care, his eyes on the object in his hands. A moment later, the boy could hear the muffled voice of his father on the telephone. Salam perched on the end of his bed, thanking Allah that he had been spared a beating, at least for now. He stayed like that until, a few minutes later, he heard his father open the apartment door and step out into the night. Salam pictured the ancient tablet that had been his for less than a day and knew, in that instant, that he would never see it again. Jerusalem, Tuesday, 8.45pm Amir Tal knocked on the door with two brisk taps, then, without waiting for an answer, walked into the Prime Minister's office. Yaakov Yarev's chair was swivelled around, its back to the door. Rosh Hamemshala? The chair spun around immediately, revealing that the Prime Minister was wide-eyed and alert. But, Tal noticed, there was no pen in his hand, no half-complete document on the table, no sign, in fact, that he hadn't been asleep. A trick the boss had learned in the army, no doubt. Sir, the technicians say they've cracked the note left by Shimon Gutmann. The lab will send over the results in the next few minutes. Who else knows about this? No one else, sir. There was another tap on the door. The deputy prime minister. I hear we have some news from the lab. The PM shot Tal a weary look. Convene a meeting. Better have Ben Ari here, too. Gentlemen, the scientists have worked 24-7 to see through the blood and tissue fragments and reveal what message it was Shimon Gutmann wished to convey to the Prime Minister. They warned that the version they have is provisional, contingent on final tests. The Defence Minister, Yossi Benari, cleared his throat and began fidgeting with his Yarmulk. Benari was a modern, muscular Israeli, and a raging nationalist, leader of a party whose core belief was that Israel should have the largest borders possible. Gutmann had denounced him as a traitor to their cause just for sitting in Yarov's cabinet, as had the rest of the hardcore settler movement. But Benari believed he was doing vital patriotic work, acting as the break on Yarov that would prevent him selling the Jewish people's birthright for a mess of pottage. Tal saw the fidgeting and cut to the chase. It turns out that this was more than a note. It was a letter. My dear Kobe, I have been your enemy for longer than I was your comrade in arms. Perhaps that is why every attempt I have made to contact you has been blocked. That is why I have resorted to this desperate move tonight. I could not risk giving this letter to one of your staff so that they could throw it straight into the trash. Forgive me for that. I write because I have seen something that cannot be ignored. This secret puts me in fear for my life. The knowledge it contains is timeless, and yet, in the light of everything you are doing, impossibly urgent. When you have heard it, you will understand. You will tremble as I have done. 
as if God himself had spoken to you. My number is below. Please call me tonight, Kobe, for the sake of our covenant. Shimon. Tal noticed the Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister glance at each other, then away. He'd obviously cracked. This from the Deputy PM, Avram Mosek. A bad case of Jerusalem syndrome. The term referred to an acknowledged medical condition cited by psychiatrists to describe those whose heads had been turned by the Holy City. You could spot them from the Via della Rosa to the back streets of the Jewish quarter, usually men, usually young, with the beard, sandals and wild eyes of those convinced they could hear the voices of angels. Yarev raised his hand and leaned forward. These are not the words of a madman. This is a letter from a man desperate to tell me something. The task now is to ensure that no one breathes a word of the contents of this letter. Amir will say that the lab tests were inconclusive. If so much as a syllable of it leaks out, I will sack both of you and replace you with your bitterest party arrivals. Mossack and Ben-Ari drew back, astounded. And Amir here will tell the press you betrayed a crucial state secret to the enemy during the peace negotiations. Meanwhile, Amir, it is clear that Shimon Gutman harbored a secret for which he was prepared to risk his life. Your job is to find out what it was. <laughs>